So congratulations for um, another full day of practice. <coughs> Mary Oliver, she um, evidently dreamt this uh, little poem. The dream was that um, she wrote a poem and it said, Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. And it took me years to understand that this too was a gift. And so I know that our learning to... Um, to sit with ourselves is um, is not easy. Perhaps akin to walking into a um, hall of mirrors, starring me, myself, and I. <laughs> the mirrors are above and below and all around, and it's a powerful incubator to learn to sit with ourselves. So we're like that chickpea in the pot and we're getting the good cook. When I lived in the monastery, I coined another name for it. It's my experience of being there that it just, um, you know, on the outside it looks really nice and peaceful and a redwood forest or beautiful place. And, but the inside um, can be a cooker. So I used to call it another name for the monastery was a shit accelerator. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just bringing up all my shit in spades. And uh, again, it's not easy to sit with ourselves. It's difficult, as Mary Oliver says, that it took years to understand that this too was a gift, this box full of darkness. that we're willing to um, look at what's here. Because that's not uh, necessarily the, the status quo in our culture and around the world to really begin to take a look at what's here. And this is not something new. This is not a new occurrence. This has been happening for a millennia or more. perhaps ever since we stepped out of the garden. And St. Augustine in the year 399, so it's 2015, 399 is a long time ago, and he writes that people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and wonder at the huge waves of the sea. Did you get up to West Cliff yet? Check it out. People wonder the long courses of the rivers, the vast compass of the ocean. People wonder the circular motion of the stars and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering. That's written in the year 399. I ask to uh, acknowledge and congratulate you that um, 
that you're not walking past yourself and that you are wondering who is this mind-body organism sitting here with all the things that come up and I want to just acknowledge that there's a perennial wisdom in the world that is cross-cultural philosophical, spiritual, psychological a perennial tradition that understands about turning inwards They said of the shamans of old that the how could they travel, and actually even the shamans of this day, how can they travel with another to their hells and back? And that was because they had traveled into their own hells and back. And in some ways, within our practice, we are also traveling into our own hells and own heavens and back. It's not easy. But what else is there to do? It might actually be even efficient to travel into our own hells and to heal our hearts. One German poet said that, uh, you know, you have your choice of whether you want to deal with your suffering or not, but if you don't deal with it, you have two. So there's kind of an efficiency, if you will, to turn into one suffering, our own, rather than creating another by not looking at it. And there's the right timing in the right place. I want to just acknowledge that. Sometimes those that have lived with terrible trauma is the only way to survive is to not deal with it. But there generally comes eventually a time where it's time to turn inwards, to heal. There's a Christian mystic in the Middle Ages, Francois Fenelon, that speaks about this process of turning in and it's written in some middle age language that's very descriptive that I'm very fond of he writes that as the light increases we see ourselves to be worse than we thought so we could say the light is, is awareness as the light increases we see ourselves to be worse than we thought and we're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling <laughs> from a hidden cave we never could have believed that we'd harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear but while our faults diminish the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we can be filled with horror. This is not sounding good, is it? <laughs> but actually ends with a very hopeful verse for us. He says, Please bear in mind, for your comfort, we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. Mm -hmm. So bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. Very beautiful. And I know it feels for many of us very counterintuitive to turn into what's here. And of course our society and culture is very much uh, telling us to go somewhere else. I'll never forget many years ago when my son Ben was maybe about five or six years old and we were somewhere and we were walking down some stairs and he fell 
and he gonked his head. Fortunately, it wasn't a, a serious injury, but it was, you know, it hurt. And he cried, and he roared, and he ranted. And I came up to him, and he said, "Me, Daddy, it really hurts when you gonk your head." And I said, "It does hurt when you gonk your head." And I just held him and acknowledged his pain. And and a couple of friends were there, and one ran over and took a candy bar out of his pocket and said, "Here, little boy, go have a piece of candy." And I said to my friend, please, please don't give him that. Um, he actually gonked his head, and you know, we'll catch up to you in a minute. And, and then almost like a moment later, another friend came up and started going, Woo, Ben, you laugh. Woo, you'll be okay, little boy. <laughs> Trying to make him laugh. And I said to my friend, please, you don't need no necessary to do that, and we'll catch up with your head. And Ben, it, it didn't help him. <laughs> and he just looked at me and said, Daddy, it really hurts. And I said to him very lovingly and caringly and held him, and I said, I know, Ben, it does hurt when you gonk your head. It just does hurt. <coughs> and I just held him and he roared and he ranted and he did this and he did that and I just held him and just acknowledged and just validated and just loved him and he got quiet after a little bit and, and then all of a sudden he looked up and he said, okay, Dad, let's get going now. <laughs> and then off we went. And on the way home he didn't mention it. A week went by, it was not mentioned and I was reflecting on that later, realizing, like, you know, this was a completed experience. And if I had given him that candy bar or made him laugh, and every time you get hurt, you go to the candy bar, you go to the comedy, it does alleviate, but it's, there's still something in there. Acknowledge those feelings. Even in our culture, you look at it, it's called life insurance. Uh uh-uh, uh, it's death insurance. It's health insurance. No, it's sickness insurance. <laughs> and so there's something like a message that's kind of converse here, paradoxical. Turning in scares us, though, and it's, it's you know, that's to be acknowledged. But it's ironic um, growing up in the East Coast in New England and getting into skids in the snow, you're taught to turn into the skid. And that the more you turn away from it, the more you spin out. It's happened to me too. And um, never forget this moment where I turned in and I could feel the velocity of my car beginning to straighten. And it was surprising because I desperately kept on turning away because I didn't want anything to do with the skid, but I kept on skidding out more. So in similar ways, you know, we're learning to turn into what's here in the body, the mind, the heart, and to acknowledge what's here. Using the word acknowledging, I'm not using the word accepting, because sometimes accepting in our language means to try to be okay with what's there, but it could be that we're not okay. Maybe the practice is to acknowledge just how not okay it is. That there's room for rage and anger, sadness, fear, whatever's there, to allow and to acknowledge. There's a beautiful line from a Dana Falls poem called Allow, and it says, Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Grace will carry you to higher ground. Jennifer Wellwood, 
she writes a really very powerful poem about this turning in and what happens. So they, it's kind of the filling out more of this notion from Jana Falls. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. And Jennifer Wellwood says in her poem, unconditional, willing to experience aloneness. I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. This is all about turning in. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition I flee from pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. So too with the Buddha, the same sojourn turning into what's here. And I shared on the first uh, talk about you know, his own visitations of what's known as the heavenly messengers that awakened him to the inevitabilities of life, of aging, mm-hmm. illness, death, and that there's a path, there's a, there's a way potentially to discover peace. When he met that last heavenly messenger of a, of, an, of a monk, of a holy person, an ascetic. <coughs> the Buddha had the same deep questions. What is this life? As I mentioned underneath this tree, after mastering all of these concentration practices and practicing self-mortification and realizing the futility self-mortification, the futility in some ways of just developing total absorption, concentration of mind. Yes, you could still the mind still didn't understand the suffering and its causes and it was only when he shifted his practice from concentration to insight, you could say from absorption to bringing that focused awareness, not to get one pointed, but to experience the rise and the fall, the phenomenon which we've been doing this week. Mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of feeling tones, mindfulness of mind states, thoughts and emotions, all coming and going, coming and going. And it was this shifting of the practice into this penetration of impermanence that deep realizations arose within him. And when he came to a deep realization about suffering, this to me was... um, one of the most important realizations, after first of all acknowledging that there is indeed suffering, then investigating into its causes. The first cause, primary cause, is ignorance or unawareness or not seeing clearly into the nature of things. And because of that not seeing clearly, that gives rise to misconceptions, perhaps beliefs that happiness or lasting joy and so forth can be found outside of oneself gives rise to craving but speaking of this unawareness the teacher Tampu Lucero he used to say that midnight is dark and the new moon is dark and the thickness of the forest is dark 
but darkest of all is ignorance. Ignorance, we don't see, we don't know. This is why, again, the Sero spoke about uh, this knowing. If you know, you can begin to break the cycle. If you don't know, you will go round and around the cycle of suffering. From unawareness, it leads to, again, these misconceptions, perhaps a belief that happiness can be found outside of oneself. You know, we all, at times, have desires. You know, in some ways, there's nothing terribly wrong about desire. But where we get caught is in the belief that somehow something outside of us can make us whole. When you even look at the definition of desire, the craving, and how it causes suffering, you can say that desire is wanting what you can't have. In this place of wanting what you can't have in the moment. Maybe you'll get it in a little bit. But it's just wanting what you can't have right now. And perhaps it keeps us in a place of, uh, of wanting and there's very little peace in those moments. Again, in Buddhist psychology, the three great sources of all suffering is ignorance and greed and hatred. And it is said in the sutras that there's no fire hotter than craving or greed. There's no ice colder than hatred. There's no fog thicker than ignorance. But there is, I want to just acknowledge, for so many of us, a desire, a longing to be whole, to be connected, to be loved, to be seen. But where are we looking for it? It's interesting, in Latin, the word desire comes from desidere. And it's something connected with belonging to the stars. So there's like a longing to belong to the stars. Where are we looking for this? Where are we looking for this? If we're looking outside of ourselves and have this misconception of things, living in a world that is ever-changing, we may not be able to keep what we want or get, and of course it changes, particularly if we're looking outside of ourselves. So um, here's a a rendering of the cause of suffering, again by... um, Ajahn Amaro, who we've quoted a few times, an Englishman who's a Thai forest monk, an abbot. And he says, This is the noble truth of the cause of suffering. It is craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again. 
ever seeking delight now here and now there. Namely, it's the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. I love his language on this. I can so personally relate to it. I, has anyone also felt like me craving that is compelling and intoxicating? Oh yeah, I want it. And that gives birth again and again into things. Delight here, delight there. Delight in the sensual, delight in the craving to be someone, the craving and delight to feel nothing, to turn off. And so sensual delight, you can say from a psychological point of view, it's, it's like eros, libidinal, it's drive, it's instinct, it's to feel good. There's so many different ways that we feel good, that we can enjoy feeling good in this world. Of course, having a comfortable body is helpful. Food and sex. I've mentioned this before about shopping, the joy of shopping, putting down that credit card. Or even now with Amazon, one click and you got it, man. <laughs> it's like Nirvana. It's very addictive. Doing it. And Amazon's smart. They go, well, this is what you purchased recently. Do you want to get it again? A click here, too. I don't work for Amazon. <laughs> the certain foods, oh my gosh, sensual delight. But then you eat it and it's all of a sudden you realize it's just about gone. And what are you going to do with your life now? <laughs> if it's not food, it's sex. If it's not sex, it's, I don't know, whatever it is. It's always something. But then it, it dissolves. And then what? Let's look for something else. Because somehow when I'm in that world of satiation, I'm in heaven. There's no self, no identification. I'm just in the experience of satiation. But then it goes away. So perhaps is there sometimes within us this misconception that outside this and get this substance, this thing, this action is going to make me whole. <coughs> I had a very touching conversation with my 18-year-old a few weeks ago and we were just talking about this. This belief that there can be something outside that can make you whole and happy. I could see that he had never heard of this before, and he's just hmm. That's that's pretty interesting to think about. But this belief, it's rooted in that somehow I'm not enough. There's a deficiency, as Tara Brock would call it, the trance of unworthiness, the trance of shame, the trance of deficiency. That somehow something outside of me makes me whole. I'm incomplete without it. Kabir, he kind of puts it this way. <clears throat> Friend, tell me what I can do about this world that I held on to. But it keeps on spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe. But then one day I noticed that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. So then I pull back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. <laughs> I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving my greed and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> it goes on for a long time. 
So we can say that the theme song, and I, I've attributed different theme songs to these causes of suffering, and so the theme song for this is the Rolling Stones, I Just Can't Get No Satisfaction. You know, how much I try and I try and I try, I just can't get no satisfaction. So the second craving, to be someone, to be something, this is classic narcissism, self-importance, superego. Emily Dickinson writes, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, but don't tell. They'll banish us, you know. Oh, how dreary to be somebody, how public, like a frog, to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. I, I, I. Inflation, and it also has its balance of deflation. But it's all connected with identification. Remember once, retreat, I was teaching Belenus, that a man was reporting um, about practice and he said at one moment he was doing walking meditation outside and he looked around and he realized in that moment he was the best walking meditator <laughs> in an entire group. Inflation. And then in the next moment, deflation. How could I think of such a thing? I am the worst person in the universe. This identification with self. But this has got some very insidious and very deep-rooted suffering for many of us that I think we'll relate to is this belief that somehow that I need you in many different ways all the time because even once it's not enough. I need you to tell me how wonderful a Bob is as a meditation teacher or whatever the story is. I need you for that. The only way that I can feel whole is when I hear that. And it lasts just for a moment. And then it goes away. So somehow there's a belief that, that I need you for my wholeness. It is important that we do have a sense of self. I'm not negating that. Because in so many ways, this practice is an incredibly personal practice and it's also an incredibly impersonal practice. And if we haven't been told when we're young that, you know, that, you're, that we're proud of you, that we love you, that to help you to develop a, a somewhat of a stabilized identity, then we begin to have this belief in, that somehow I need from you to make me feel whole. insidious <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah last last summer I went on a, a trip uh, to go teach a retreat in Europe and um, when I when I when I uh, landed or, or something like that or um, but actually, before no, before I left at the airport, I wrote. I, I'm often like like write little notes about. Um, well, I'm heading here and here, and there may be a vessel of the Dharma, blah blah blah, and 
and then, you know, I, and I landed and got in my hotel room or whatever, I'm in transit, and I opened up Facebook, and I saw that there was 199 likes. <laughs> and I saw within me, I want that fucking 201. <laughs> <laughs> I want it. Because if I get that 200, that's going to mean whatever it means. I saw it. I wanted it. I wanted that 200. I told that to a group, and I think I wrote something the other day, and someone writes a little comment. I just clicked that. You just got the 100th from me. So it's now become a little... Coming a little joke now, but like, it, like you know, <laughs> this is insidious. The places that we look for um, approval, to be seen, to be whole be connected, to be loved. And if we have this belief that we're not enough inside us, then we're always looking outside of ourselves, like leaving ourselves for another. The, the theme song for this definitely has to be I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> from country western music. Mm. You know. And it's a deep pain. I mean, we laugh about the 200 Facebook because we know. At least I know. And um, but there's that thing of looking outside for that sense of wholeness, and that's such a cause of suffering, such a cause. The craving to feel nothing is like thanatos, the death instinct, annihilation, not wanting to exist. It's the feeling of numbing, disassociating. Of course, the many different substances that we can use to not be here, or even without substances, just getting lost in our books, in our internet, and in movies, and the 10,000 million things that we can do so that we don't have to be inside our skin, flesh, bones, and being. How much of the time we turn away, avoid what's here, not to feel anything. I had shared this before, some of you may have heard this of, well, there was a period of time when my son, there was a possibility that he had cancer, it turned out that he didn't, it turned out actually that he had mono, I love mono now, <laughs> and, um, but during that time I was actually teaching a meditation retreat in a medicine but it was an Insight Santa Cruz retreat, so I was in close correspondence with my family each day, and, um, and I noticed when I taught that when I'd get done I would immediately walk back to my room even during breaks I'd walk back to my room and I'd go to sleep and then I'd wake up and for one split second it was alright and then it was like OMG I don't want to be here I don't want to feel this and I never much related to this craving to feel nothing and then it like hit me like a sledgehammer. Oh, this is what it's... Yeah, I don't want to feel anything. I don't want to be here. And um, it was very uh, illuminating to see, oh, this is what the, the Buddha was 
talking about this annihilation, this not wanting to feel, to turn away. And then I began to see how that played itself out in so many different areas of my life where I just lose myself into something else so I didn't have to be here. Very illuminating. Even too, sometimes I've, I've followed my, this is getting very personal, my, my sexual longings, yearnings. And inevitably, I'm, I was surprised to see as I stay with it, it leads right back into the womb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, just, and I didn't have to feel, didn't have to do anything. It was just like, you know, just being plugged in. And um, my mother's in the umbilical cord. There was like, there was a sense of, Longing to not feel anything, just like, ah. Uh, it was very powerful, this part inside us, not wanting to feel, not wanting to be here. So we can guard ourselves over it and armor ourselves. So, you know, the theme song for this is from Simon and Garfunkel, I Am a Rock. I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries, craving to feel nothing. Can anybody relate to these, or is it just me? (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's just incredibly powerful that over nearly 2,600 years ago, this is why rather than even noble truths, they're like they're real, powerful realizations into the nature of suffering. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure that there may be others, but this covers quite a lot of territory. Craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone, the craving to feel nothing. I, it's, it blows my mind. Like just, I just, it's just really powerful teachings into suffering. And this powerful misconception, this belief that something outside of us is going to make us whole. (coughs) Those that know that they're whole, for example, Ramana Maharshi, the great saints of India, it's supposedly uh, some of his students uh, were saying to him as he was dying of cancer, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go, and evidently looked at them in total astonishment and said, where am I going? And each of us, just as regular folks, at times we have that experience of timelessness. Paul Simon, he writes in a song, You Think Too Much, have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face and everything was just sunny, everything was just funny? Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? And I think there's times that we all have have had moments like that where it's sunny, where it's funny, where our brain just takes a seat behind our face. We're connected with this universe and it doesn't even matter whether we live or die because we are everything. And even Einstein said that the notion of separation, quote-unquote, is an optical delusion of our consciousness. When we look at it, it begins the, the protons, neutrons, and electrons begin to you know, break down. For, you know, these are the particles that make up this body. and Where, where, where do they go? Where did it go? Are they going anywhere? (sighs) 
My grandma died at the age of 103. I used to think, you know, everyone's going to die, but I wasn't sure about her. <laughs> I love my grandma, Grandma Nettie. And um, when she died, she had a you know, traditional burial, and um, so we're bringing her casket to the grave, and the cemetery was quite a, you know, she was in the far end, so I, I walked ahead, and I saw some cemetery workers standing around there and sitting there, and said hello to them, and I looked down in the hole and saw there was like about six inches of water on the bottom, and I asked them about the water. I said, oh yeah, you know, this is by the Atlantic Ocean, there's a high water table here. Yesterday we had to go pump and pump it out. <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, I'm not putting my grandma in there, I'm going to take her in my car and take her home. <laughs> Because I was just revolted. And then my mind started tripping out on her body going in there, and the water, and then the earth, and then it's going to be a friggin' orgy, a bacterial orgy. And I was so mad, because I loved my grandma so much, I wanted to just take her. But then as I stayed with this orgy, of these bacteria that, of course, start from the inside of the body. They're eating her, they're shitting her, they're peeing her, and eventually they're making love with each other, and then they're giving babies of her, and then all of a sudden the whole universe turns into my grandmother. It was an incredible gift that my grandmother gave me. So I want to be buried in and my last donation is my own body to the beings. But you think of it, they're eating of it, they're pooping of it, they're peeing of it, they're copulating, and they're, they're like grandmas all of a sudden the whole universe. <laughs> so at the Sierras, in the, in the Dharma, there's a teaching of living with the many. And of course, uh, we know now in modern science that human beings are actually human biomes and there's actually more non-human matter than there is human in a human body. We're about 10% human and it's about 90% organisms. Of course, living together in harmony until they're not. But then again, what is not? It's this identification with self and I mean my that says that it's not okay, but in the, in, it's just... Adam's are shifting. Tampu Lucero, my teacher, for 81 straight nights gave 81 different Dharma talks on the 81 different organisms that lived in the body. And he always ended with a poem at the end of each Dharma talk. And it was Poem, Poza, Poto, I Kanda Go I, Thudo I, Thodan, Thinjan, Piti. And what that means is these organisms eat of the body and then they defecate and urinate in the body and then they copulate and, and have offsprings and then they die and thus your body is a cemetery. And then we'd go on to the next evening. <laughs> so if you look in the Vasudhi Maga, the path of purification, you'll find a whole section on living with the many. It's interesting that modern science, of course, there's way more than 81 different families of organisms. But they were pointing to something.
I appreciated last night, yesterday afternoon. <laughs> We're so used to giving Truman talks at night. We're always saying tonight. It's actually the afternoon. Um, <clears throat> you know, yesterday's talk on identification. And I just want to just acknowledge it. Uh, this thing of identica- identification is a huge thing. You know, this teaching of, you hear in the Dharma of non-self, it, it kind of rubs up against our name and our status, our ethnicity, our political affiliations, and actually in some ways it's just downright un-American. You know, I, you know Descartes, the, the heart of our Western world, you know, I think, therefore I am. He didn't say, therefore I'm not. And so the sense of I and identification is, is a very huge thing. And so I also want to just speak a little bit about this. And I loved what uh, you know, Bruce was referring to um, in neuroscience. Uh, you know, we can't, we can't find an I. Rick Hansen also writes in The Buddha's Brain from a neurological standpoint, the everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion that the apparently coherent and solid I that we, you refer to as yourself is actually built from many subsystems and sub-subsystems over the course of development with no fixed center. It goes on and on. Um, but it's very interesting to, um, to look at that. And of course, um, another definition that I like to use about non-self is that this is kind of like an ownerless nature to things. I don't have a lot of control speak to my prostate. It's getting larger. I didn't send it a personal invitation to get larger. My hair fell out. I didn't say for my hair to fall out. It just happened. I didn't say to be 61. I'm glad I am 61. I'm going to be 62 soon. But there's a certain type of ownerless quality to things. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days and makes a new liver in six weeks. Replaces a new head hair every two to five years, except me. <laughs> the body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows a skin, new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to me read this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that 98% of of the body is made of atoms and it replaces itself in less than one year. So in other words, at any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as it was yesterday. Bruce was talking about that yes in Bruce's psychology the, the sense of I is made up of these piles or these aggregates of these groups when hearing this it can be very unsettling a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist he wrote to me once in an email that this practice is um, very disabusive to him and when I heard that, I got a little alarmed. I didn't know what abusive was, but am I abusing my psychiatrist friend? 
And so I looked up in the dictionary what dis- disabusive means, and it means there's some sense of it's turning what you believe upside down, and, and like you know, things begin to uh, not be as solid as they once appeared to be. So there's a sense of um, getting things a little bit unsettled. So sometimes this notion, like, what? Who am I without my story? What do you mean? I am my story. I am who I am. At least Alice in Wonderland thought so until one day the caterpillar and Alice, they looked at each other and for some time in silence, the caterpillar took the pipe, the hookah, out of his mouth and addressed her in a languid and sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. And Alice replied rather shyly, I, I, I hardly know, sir. Just at present, at least, I knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. Well, what do you mean, said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. And Alice said, I can't explain myself because I'm not myself, you see. <laughs> So another way to hold these piles, these aggregates, this sense of no-self, ownerless nature of things, um, the selfless nature of things, it's a very perplexing concept. And so one way that I find also that's helpful to me is more from a psychological point of view. I'm coming back to the stories. And to me, this makes a lot of sense. Sometimes it, the Buddha is, is referred to as, as the unconditioned one. Experience the unconditioned. But this is pointing to this reference of unconditioned implies that there is a condition. And to me, condition is the conditioning, the story psychology will call it the narrative and how that some of these stories that we have about ourselves can be very self-limiting definitions particularly for those of us that maybe grew up in households where we were shamed made to feel small that our voice doesn't count that we're not pretty that we're not smart that we're not a good athlete that you can't sing you can't play an instrument or whatever the 10,000 ways and we begin to have these stories about ourselves, again, what Tara Brock calls this trance of deficiency, this trance of shame, this trance of unworthiness. And these stories that we live with in our lives are, can be very enslaving, and they repeat themselves again and again and again and again. We believe in these stories to be true, and it's only when we become aware, when we awaken, we can begin to make some changes. And this is why mindfulness plays such an important role. When we become aware of the story, we are temporarily disengaged from it. And we may begin to see more clearly through it and not see and see that this is just a limited definition. Margaret Wheatley, she writes, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal. And we don't notice anything else 
except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. But when we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, we have a chance at changing. And this is the liberative qualities of mindfulness. It's helping us to begin to see more clearly into these stories. And these stories are built upon our past experiences of life. They're not to be denied, but to be acknowledged and begin to see that we're more than this limited definition of who I thought it was. This, to me, is, I think, a way that's a very practical rendering understanding of breaking free of self, of this, of this story, this narrative of pain. If I have a story that I find happiness outside of myself, just as I went through each of those causes of suffering, there's a story, there's a belief that this is what will make me whole, we'll continue that cycle. But when we awaken, we can begin to experience potentially more and more freedom. It's a practice. So we work with this. I deeply believe that that's what the Buddha's deepest realization about self was. He broke through these stories, these narratives, became free, dissolving all greed, hatred, and ignorance. So how to heal our own hearts? Carl Jung writes that I can feed the hungry and forgiven insults and I can love my enemies. These are all great virtues, but what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of the offenders are all within me and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved? What then? that I stand in the need of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. <coughs> the beauty of wisdom, when we begin to see more clearly into where we are stuck, where we're holding back, grasping on, pushing away, and becoming potentially much more free. This is from Cahill Gubriam. And God said, love your enemy. And I obeyed him. And I loved myself. Take that as the 11th commandment. 
So maybe when it all comes down to it, building our confidence in the practice, developing faith in this practice, that we will find a way through the light of awareness and heart. Patrick Overton says that when I come to the edge of all the light that I know and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. That I'll find something to stand on or I will be taught to fly. When I come to the edge of the light of all that I know and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. I will find something to stand on or I will be taught to fly. It's pretty good. A monk friend asked me many years ago when I was sharing with him about my own fears of death. and He just asked me a beautiful question. He said, Bob, do you want to die with fear in your heart or peace? I knew the answer. <laughs> peace. And you know, in these practices, you know sometimes it can feel kind of a lot for the head, and splitting hairs. What is this feeling tone and mind state and this and that and the Abhidhamma and all that stuff? You know, when did the Buddha died, Nanda, who was his nephew or cousin, relative, but also his attendant, and actually Ananda is the one that actually memorized all of the Buddha's teachings. That's why actually when you read in the canonical literature, each of the suttas begins with, thus have I heard. That was Ananda saying, this is what I heard. And then he went on to say what it was. But evidently, when after the, the Buddha had died, he was found, Ananda, out in the forest, just crying and crying and crying. He lost his, his best friend, his beloved. And, and evidently, Ananda just kept on saying over and over and over, he was just so kind. He was just so kind. He was just so kind. Not that he was the wisest, the teacher of gods and men. He was just so kind. And so let the kindness enter into you. That's the deepest wisdom. That which softens the hardened heart, but it's a wise wisdom the relinquishing of greed and hatred and ignorance seen clearly into the nature of things. All that's left is just kindness. When I lived with these uh, forest monks for many years, there was such a kindness, particularly with my elder teacher, Minded Seto. He was just incredibly kind and incredibly, truly the most contented human being I ever had a chance to... I lived with him over eight years. He was chilled out. <laughs> and he was the type of person that was the opposite of charisma. There's some spiritual teachers that have a lot of charisma. But Seto, if you went into a room and there was furniture, you might notice the furniture first before him. <laughs> it was kind of like a black hole. He was not noticeable because he just didn't... He, it's not that there was a negation or a deflation. It just... 
he just didn't track anything. And he was so utterly, utterly contented. You know, I lived with him for eight years. Never met anybody so deeply contented. He could just be left in the room on his chair and he could just be there forever. Many nights just massaging his feet, listening to him breathe. And his breath transported me in some ways, you could say, to the deepest forest. To have that type of contentment is incredible. And so breathing in and breathing out, maybe I want to just invite in for this moment that we can invite in the quality of contentment and ease. And to experience that, all the wanting and the not wanting has to fall away. In its place is ease of being. falling away of greed, the falling away of hatred, the seeing clearly into the understanding of suffering and its causes and the path to freedom. It's right here. Just for this moment, try it on. Just in this few moments, content in with ease. No other place to go, nothing to do. Nothing to get, nothing to push away, just ease, open-heartedness, clarity of mind and heart. beings discover the gateways into the heart. Experiencing deep freedom and peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.